Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So at the table, I like to, to separate myself from the, the situation and to create space between myself and, and my ego to allow myself to think about the situation more rationally. So a, a quick thing I do is say, and I talk to myself in the third person, and this might sound a little bit like odd. It might feel almost arrogant to do this, you know, to, to talk to yourself. Like when you talk in the third person, it sounds like you're kind of being arrogant, right? Like if you speak out loud in the third person, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but when you do this to yourself, you actually look at yourself as if you were giving yourself advice. So when I'm playing poker, I, I, I look at it like, if I was sitting behind Alec, what would I tell him to do? And that makes it easier for me to see the situation from a third party and look at the situation objectively and say, Alec, what, what is the best? What should Alec do in this hand? Yeah. And then I say, okay, well, what advice would this person give to Alec? And then I say, well, well, Alec should go all in because the odds are in his favor. This is the right play. But when you're in the first person, you're saying, I don't want to risk this money here. This is so much money. What if I lose? And I feel like that separation really helps me think uh, logically about it. And if you think about why this works, it's actually pretty simple. Like, think about how, why, why is it that when your friend comes to you and says, what should I do about my relationship situation? You can see their relationship problems clearly. You can see yeah. his personal life clearly and give advice to your friend about what, she, what he or she should <laughs> right. do. But why is it so hard to figure out your own life? Yeah. Like, why is it so hard to figure out your own problems? But why is it so easier to see the solutions for other people? Because you're not emotionally involved. You're not, uh -huh. a, you're not internally involved in that situation because you've created that space between you and the other person. So I try and do that at the table. And I talk to myself in third person and pretend like I'm giving myself advice. And I actually pose questions to myself in the third person to create that space. And then it's easier to go in and execute when, when it's time to go talk to that girl. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Alec, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Srini. Appreciate it. It's awesome to be here. <laughs> Yeah, it's my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work because you wrote in after having heard uh, our conversation with Annie Duke, who was incredible. And uh, you would come to me with sort of two different angles. One was about decision making, the other was about risk. And uh, as I was saying before, we just hit record here, I'd been thinking quite a bit about uh, this whole idea of the psychology of risk and, and why people have capacity for it, how you build it and all that, all of which we'll get into. Um, but before we start with that, um, given that you come from a professional poker background, I want to ask you a question that I don't think I've ever started the show with, and that is, what is the earliest memory you have about money from growing up? 
and what impact did that end up having on you? About money or about risking money? Because I feel like it's... Money in general. Ooh, this is a good question. And I've never, not least of all to start a podcast, but I've never been asked this question. So I'm going to have to dig into the archives here (laughs) without stalling too long to to bore the audience. Um, I guess... So for sure, one comes to mind, and that's when I was like selling lemonade, but it has to be way before that. Um, Maybe, man, I I don't know. I don't have a great answer. I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm not usually not at a loss for words. If if you watch my content, if anything, I'm too verbose. Yeah. But I really am at a loss for words here. I don't have a great answer of when I was exposed first to money. That's like at a young age. Um, okay. Okay. Let me, let me rephrase the question. Maybe what, was there anything that your parents taught you about money or, or something that you subconsciously got an imprint about, uh, from them, uh, while you were growing up? And, and I'll give you, you know, my example, just to give you context. You know, I think I distinctly remember, uh, when we got to seventh grade and there were rich kids and poor kids and, you know, Ralph Lauren t-shirts were, you know, $60 and Air Jordans were $130. And my dad was like, you're in seventh grade, you're going to grow like a weed. We can't afford this. Um, that was one of the earliest imprints I remember receiving, uh, about money. So I, I was curious, like, what is something like that? Particularly because I think the nature of your work is, is really, uh, interesting. So I was curious what that might be. That's, that's a good question. So, uh, um, I did, my parents were both uh, entrepreneurs. They were both had their own real estate company. They got divorced when I was young and they both went their separate ways, but in, in both involved in real estate. So I did, I think, inherit this idea that, um, that it like takes risk to make money in, in a way, because everything's mm-hmm. like, you know, you kind of work, they would work for themselves. And there was times when, they would do well. And there was times when things would, you know, it wasn't like a regular um, thing necessarily like a regular, having a regular paycheck. So I just kind of, I feel like I gravitated towards that. And I, I kind of learned the, the ways of, of selling and just kind of hustling in the way that you have to, if you run your own business. So I, I remember from a young age, like even being really inspired by this idea of like making lemonade to sell it. Or um, when pogs were popular and I was young, I would um, collect them. And then I remember like trying to trade pogs for other ones to like build an asset in my collection. And and it was it was a different, you know, sort of it wasn't necessarily money, but it was like something that was worth something. And I really enjoyed the process of collecting and building that asset as much as possible. Um, I remember selling baked goods to the local uh, coffee shop when I was young to... Uh, make make money and selling you know delivering flyers um for my parents real estate company and then other companies in the neighborhood that maybe could benefit from publicity in paper flyers <laughs> this is obviously before internet boomed um yeah. so i i did these sorts of things and that was that was like some of the early impressions i had growing up and like i think my parents really in- encouraged that and uh, i'm really grateful for that they really encouraged me to pursue these little sort of trivial things because I, you know, you learn a lot in the process. Like when you're selling lemonade, you, like I learned, I remember selling it for like 10 cents. And then I remember uh-huh. thinking like, 
what can I do to raise the price to 15 cents? And like that is something that I was thinking about when I, I might have been seven, eight, nine. I mean, I don't know how old I was, but <laughs> like that's something that I just must have in, subconsciously inherited from my parents thinking like, okay, well, if I can do it for this, what if I can, you know, sell the lemonade in this way and make more? Or what if I can like brand the lemonade differently? You know, like I can call it this name or something like that. And so I would, yeah. I remember I raised the prices and then I remember one, one neighbor was quite upset that I charged um, five cents more the next day. I think he paid me anyway, because I was, I could get away with that being an eight year old kid <laughs> door knocking for, for lemonade. But um, yeah, those are some of my early memories surrounding money. They were mostly centered around like business and those sorts of things. Like, I mean, business, what, 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 it's kind of laugh, laughable thing to call it. But um, yeah, that was like a, a bit of my upbringing. And I think that shaped a lot of the way that I, I, I saw the world. And then also just, being more, I think it gave me like those sorts of early on experiences gave me confidence later on to take risks when it came to things like poker or starting my own business or pursuing esoteric things that that seem yeah. risky, but that were just kind of because I kind of exercised that muscle at a young age, I, I felt like that gave me confidence going forward. Yeah. It's funny because I had a similar you know, sort of candy empire that I started in junior high when they opened Costco in our town. And I, when you mentioned the price thing, I couldn't help but think we I remember we would get these uh, gumballs called crybabies. They're like sour gumballs. And I priced them at 10 cents because you got 250 for eight dollars. So I made 17 dollars a box, you know, box in profit. And I remember thinking you know, a couple of years later, I was like, man, if, if we had just priced them at 25 cents, nobody would have known the better. They would have happily paid for them. And we would have made so much more money. But uh, I wonder, do you have siblings just out of curiosity? I don't. And actually, yeah, yeah, so I'm an only child. And I had step siblings when my parents were remarried. But um, yeah. Mm. Uh, So the reason I ask that is I always wonder if if you have siblings, like what kind of messages you both got about risk that were, were different. Did your parents encourage any particular career paths, uh, given that they were entrepreneurs? And then I guess the other thing, and I'd asked Allison this question as well, is what would you tell parents about risk tolerance when it comes to their kids? Because I think parents in general are very protective. I know this from my surf trips, even as a 41-year-old man, you know, the, the directive I get from my parents every time I go on a trip is we need a text message every day to let us know you haven't died. <laughs> like not in those exact <laughs> words, but that's effectively the message. Uh, yeah, great two part question. I, the first part is they did. There was no career path that they pushed me towards. They weren't. I didn't have like a. You hear some of those experiences where people are like, "Oh, my parents wanted me to be a doctor, so I pursued medical school from a young age," or they had that expectation that like my parents were this, so I was going to be that. Um, it, you know, there there was this idea that I could work for them in real estate and potentially take over their real estate company someday, but um, they never like you know, force that on me or made me feel guilty that I didn't do that. Um, and I feel like they always encouraged me to do things that were random or or that wouldn't obviously lead to anything monetarily. So I know that parents sometimes discourage their kids from pursuing esoteric things like music, for example, because there's not a clear monetary path. But for example, I remember my parents from a very young age were, were putting me in acting classes or improv Um and I'm blessed that we could afford those extracurricular activities. But I, I did that and I did music. I was in musical theater in high school. I was in choir. Um, and I, I, I took like 
I did sports, like random things. I was never good at sports, but I did like pole vaulting for a year or two. So I did like random things that like clearly were not going to be something that I would benefit from monetarily. And my parents always supported that from a very young age. I was talking about acting classes when I was like six. Um, So they always supported me from a very young age and those sorts of things. So I think uh, when it came to poker, I, I discovered that around 16. Um, I don't think that that was like expected to be a career path, but they were supportive of like me as long as I was being, you know, responsible with it and not risking money I couldn't afford to lose and those sorts of things, which we we could get into a little bit later. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was really, really grateful for that. And that um, having that support, I think it was, was huge and not having that pressure to live up to some of their expectations. Cause I know that that could be very tough. And I, I saw that in my, some of my friends around me where it was clear that, the kid didn't want to do one thing, but the parents were pushing them to do it. And then there was, it, it just, there was going to be some break there or resentment there or like unhappiness in seven years when the kid winds up a lawyer that he wanted to be an artist, you know? And so I just right. felt a lot of empathy for those situations because it's, it's an impossible situation for the kid. Um, you know, they can't stand up to his parents at 14, you know, he's still living under their, their roof. So I was really, really fortunate to have, uh, to not, to not be in that spot. Um, and the second part was remind me again. I'm sorry, went off. Yeah, what uh, you know for parents listening, what would you oh, tell them right. about risk tolerance in their own kids? Because I, I think as a parent, your natural instinct is to be protective. I think when it comes to parents evaluating risk for children, there are definitely times where they should be extremely cautious, and these are situations where fundamentally the risks that are being taken could lead to catastrophic consequences and you can't afford variance, meaning you can't afford to test the situation multiple times to see what happens. An example that comes to mind is something like, you know, kids doing drugs. Like you can't afford for your kid to try heroin Mm -hmm. and just see if it works. And then like, if they get addicted or right, like you can't (laughs) take risks when it comes to something that could have life altering consequences. And, And I don't say that lightly. Unfortunately, two of my, uh, you know what my best friend in high school like my best friend since i was six died of overdose of heroin so nothing nothing wrong with what his parents did i don't think um so i didn't i didn't want to correlate those things yeah. but um it comes to mind it's like a very serious thing to me and i think about if i had uh, children that would be something where I, I wouldn't have a risk policy for experimenting with things that like are clearly could lead to catastrophic results so it makes sense that parents could be you know even i, I don't even know if you could be but like seemingly overprotective in those areas where um, the risks associated with the activity are are, are potentially leading to disastrous results. Uh, but other areas where mm-hmm. there there aren't really um, something, there isn't really something that could go wrong aside from perhaps the kid, you know, failing or falling on his feet and learning to deal with adversity and then having to get back up and and or maybe learn that he's not as good at something as he thought he was or, or those sorts of things. Those are risks that I think are, are important to push the kid into. Not only are they going to learn about themselves and how mm-hmm. the world works, but but also it's hard to quantify um, things that are seemingly like not potentially monetizable in the future, but how the skills they develop in those activities yeah. could translate to others. So let me give you an example. I, I talked about my parents mm-hmm. pushing me to do uh, music in high school. And and uh, I ended up spending years doing musical theater and performing on stage. And now as an adult, like I was able to be very confident my first time playing poker on television and the stakes were extremely high. There was, you know, seven figures, a million dollars at stake, but I wasn't intimidated by the lights, even though I was exposed to that at a young age, because I had already sang in front of 400 of my peers in high school. Like if you can do that, then being mm-hmm. exposed to 
you know, the the spotlight doesn't bother you. Or for example, starting a brand and having a YouTube yeah. being I'm very comfortable on camera. And it's because I exercise this muscle of performing on stage and acting at a young age. And that's a, a lifelong uh, skill that I'm grateful that I have, ability that I have that served me extremely yeah. well in in life. And so I feel like it's important to to push your kid to do to take risks in these areas. And if they suck or they they're not good at whatever they're trying, that's that's life. That's fine. They're going to experiment and learn different things and build skills and and friendships and and things in those those areas. Um, but particularly when it comes to career paths, I feel like we 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 as a society and or, or you know maybe parents uh, pushing kids look in look at these things as binary like. If you go to this, you know, go to a good school and get this this type of job, there's no risk. But if you don't do this and you pursue this sort of esoteric career path, like working for yourself in some capacity, there's there's 100% risk, and it's risky. But I think mm-hmm. looking at it in terms of uh, you know something that's binary is is not correct because there's some inherent risk in going to college and, and getting a job working for someone else because you might not. You're competing with a lot of other people. You might not develop the skills. You might not love what you do. There's there's risks in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's not like you're guaranteed a safe job for life. That would be zero risk. But that's we know that that's not the case. You still have to you still have to develop the skill set. You have to love what you do. You have to get a good job. Uh, you have to not get fired from that job, or the company has to not go under. These are, there's risk in all of those things. These are non-zero possibilities, and it's not like some guarantee that if you start a business for yourself, that there's 100% risk of failure, right? Like. I think we have to be clear about attributing a specific percentage risk or or, or weighing the probability of things. Um, and it's something that poker's really taught mm-hmm. me to like weigh the actual probability of a scenario transpiring and not just looking at it like 100% or zero. Nah. Um, and then within the scope of, okay, you want to start a business for yourself. What business are you starting? In what field? Like how competitive is it? It's not that everything is the same. You know, trying to be a, a yeah. Broadway musician is not the same as trying to start a company in tech. Like there's different risks in different ones and the probability of success is different in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I want to come back to all of this, uh, you know, cause you mentioned some keywords like, you know, probability variance, you know, stakes and all of that. Uh, but before we do that, you mentioned something that I didn't want to let go of. And that is the fact that you lost a friend, um, particularly to something as tragic as heroin so early in your life. And I wonder as somebody who witnessed a loss that tragic when you were that young, what decisions did you make about how you would live your life based on having watched somebody lose theirs? Yeah, I actually lost two friends. The first was a girl that I was close. I got close with in seventh grade and uh, she passed away when I was 21. And then the second friend was my, my literally my best friend growing up. We were inseparable and he passed away when I was 30. 20, 28, 29, 30, something like that. So cut like three, four years ago. Um, yeah, I, that's a, that's a good question. It really made me, I think the first one hit me kind of harder, even though I was closer to the second one, because obviously I've, I'd never lost someone before and I was younger and, mm-hmm. you know, I'd never lost someone from, from drugs or anyone that was really close to me, uh, frankly. And so I, it really made me I actually wrote a piece about it on, that I, that I shared, but it really made me reflect on just the preciousness of life and how like anything could happen to anyone at any time. And granted, not everyone is going to perhaps experiment in drugs and, and, and overdose, but it's just like growing up, I would never have thought that this would have happened to that person. And it just made me think that we only really have 
this interaction with these people this time that we're there, right? Like you don't know when, like I never, you know, what was crazy with, 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 with Cassie was, um, I moved to Italy at the time when I was like 20, I, I moved to Italy at the time and she was supposed to come and visit me. And we were talking on, um, like Facebook or the phone. I think she called me the night before and I was the last number in her phone that she had called. And so I got the first call that this had happened. Um, and that's really, that really shook me because, um, we, I, we like just spoke, like I went to sleep and I got up and I had a call that this had happened and it, we had plans to like meet up. Um, and so it just made me think like how crazy it is that we were just talking. Everything was totally fine. I did not know at all that she was into drugs. I think she was actually cleaned at the time and just relapsed, uh, after that, but I didn't even know she was getting into drugs. And, um, it just made me think that like, we never know when our last encounter with someone could be, whether it's a friend that's close to us or our parents, because anything could happen. They can get hit by a car. They can get in an accident. They, they can have a stroke. Like, so anything could happen. And it just made me really appreciate more the interactions that I had with people. And, and even though it's something I, I struggle with, try to be as you know, present in each interaction as possible because it could be your last. Yeah. It's you know, when you, when you say that you know, idea of, of your last interaction, uh, I can't help but think of this story from a, a book called Inner Engineering, which is probably one of my favorite books I've read in the last few years by this Indian guy, Sadhguru. And there's this beautiful story he tells about two young kids who uh, in the Holocaust were separated from their parents and the little brother uh, forgets his shoes and the sister scolds him and says, you idiot, we've been separated from our parents and you, know, you forget your shoes. And then she and her brother get separated at the next station. And she made a decision from that point forward that she would never leave a conversation with somebody having potentially said something that she would regret. Uh, and that, that stayed with me. Yeah. You know, when I, when I read that, I thought, okay, you know, cause I mean, how often do we leave conversations angry with a parent or with a friend or, or something? And, and you think, wow, okay. Uh, this might be the last time I see this person. That's a, that's a beautiful story. And I feel like these are ideals that are extremely hard to live by, but I think we should strive to because it yeah. is so true. And you have, you know, thinking, I think reverse engineering to think about the, what you would feel in the worst case scenario is a great yeah. deterrent for preventing the action or what might be more realistic is immediately rectifying the action. And I feel like it's, you know, it's one thing to leave a conversation saying something, you know, not being your best because look, we're all human. I do it too, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to let a week, a month, a year go by and, and, you know, hold on to that grudge or that have that ego get in the way of, of the connection and the relationship that's, that's ultimately more important than yeah. the one argument. And so I think reverse engineering to think about, wow, what if this was, what if this, per what if I, what if I didn't talk to this person because something happened in that time that I decided I don't want to talk to them could lead us to perhaps rectify mistakes that we make or, or to let go of things that happen in a shorter time frame, so that 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 doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears. Uh, how in the world do you do you start you know playing poker at sixteen and get to the point of of being a professional poker player? Like, what is the journey that leads you there? Before we get into a lot of the psychology aspects of risk, is it like you know spending time in seedy back rooms, like the kinds of things I've seen on TV <laughs> and movies like Rounders? Um. Well, so Rounders is an excellent movie, and uh, yeah. Brian Koppelman, they they did a great job. That's a it's a brilliant movie. I watched that growing up. That was one of yeah. super inspiration, but it wasn't really the journey that I had, or I think that people that came up in poker had. Um, 
But I did get invited to a friend's house when I was 16 to play poker. And I won $12 my first time playing. And as they say, you know, if you win your first time gambling, you're hooked. And in a game like poker, where I saw that there was actually more to it than just gambling, it was calculated risk taking, right? There was actually skill involved. It wasn't like I was just you know, putting money on a roulette wheel and hoping it was red or black, I could actually choose which cards I played and when. So I saw that there was a big skill component. And I did, you know, world, the World Series of Poker was on television. And I saw that people were playing poker for thousands or millions of dollars. And there were professionals doing this that were making their living. And so I just was at a very impressionable time. And I, I just fell in love with this game. And I wanted to do everything I could to be as good as possible. So I had my flyer delivery business I was working on at the time. I dropped that completely, went all in on poker, and I spent all my free time playing in home games with friends after school. I started playing online. I was I read everything I could about poker. I talked poker with friends all the time. Um, and when I was 18, I was making money playing online poker. I was doing well. And I came to a pivotal point, a crossroads, where I realized that... I, I got to where I could, given the commitments I had at university. I was at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, and I was not doing that well in school. It was like two months into it, and I was like not that focused because I was playing copious amounts of poker and making a lot of money, and I realized something had to give. And so I evaluated my worst-case scenario and said, you know, look, I'm going to give myself a year if I'm 19, one year older than I am today, and... I lose all the money that I saved up, like twenty, thirty thousand. I'll be one year older than everyone else and broke, just like everyone else in college, of course. And whatever, I'll had, ha- I'll have had an amazing experience. I'll have learned something, but at least I'll have went all in on my dream and tried. But mm. if I m- drop out now and make it, and I run this thirty thousand up to whatever I run it up to, but most importantly, I get to live out my dream of traveling around the world to different events and playing poker. Um, that would be a massive upside. So that would, mm-hmm. you know, that would be a dream life for me. So I saw that there was an amazing reward and there wasn't really that much risk. Um, and I and I realized this was kind of like my one-shot opportunity. If if not now, then when? You know, my life's only yeah. gonna get more complicated as I move further in university. I'm gonna get more like as we call it in poker, pot committed, meaning you're committed to the pot because you've invested so much. Like if I'm in my third year of university, I'm not gonna quit three out of mm-hmm. four years in. So I realized like, this is my time. It's only going to get harder. And yeah. I went all in and never looked back. And um, there were a lot of bumps on the road, obviously, in the last... Fi- that was 15 years ago. But yeah. that was really a pivotal point where where I decided I'm going to try and play poker professionally. Okay. So uh, this is just a, a question of personal morbid curiosity. What's the most amount of money that you've lost in one night? And you know, what is the psychological impact of a loss like that? The most I've lost in a night, probably, probably, I'm trying to think because it was in Hong Kong dollars and uh, you have to divide by 7.76 to get to US. I lost, I don't know, 2.2 million US or something like that in a day. Wow. Uh, That sucked. Yeah, I was playing in uh, what's called the big game, which is the, the biggest you know the biggest cash game in the world and it was held in uh, a private casino like it was in a casino in this private room in macau and uh the buy-in was i don't know half a million dollars and um i lost four of those and that was the worst day i've ever had 
um, that was really tough. I remember walking back to, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a short walk from my, the casino to my condo where I was living at the time in Macau. I remember walking back on my own to my condo thinking just like, Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? Like, it's going to like just plotting in my head, like, okay, you know, I'm going to have to play this many hours at this level, which is, you know, five times, 10 times lower than the level I was playing at for this many hours and this, this many months. And I'm going to have to win at this rate to make that money back. And I was remember thinking it was going to take me, you know, months of time to win that back at the other game, maybe even longer, if, depending on how long I played year, a year or something like that. Um, and that was really brutal. It was really hard to get over that. And I remember just going through the motions, like forcing myself. I actually talked about this in, in a few videos I made, just going through the motions of treating myself like what I would do if I was winning. So mm-hmm. instead of getting up the next day and just binge eating, <laughs> like whatever, you know, like <laughs> trying to eat to make yourself feel better, or like watch TV all day or, uh, you know, just do whatever you would do, like a sloth, just to like whatever life doesn't matter. I remember forcing myself to be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, set an alarm and eat healthy and go to the gym and study up on the hands that I played poorly and just force myself to go through the motions of doing what I would do if I was a winner. Mm-hmm. And that it's, the, it's cause it, your, your action precedes your, your motivation. I'm never going to just get up after that and feel motivated. I mean, how long is it going to take after that sort of setback to feel suddenly motivated again? It's going to take forever if you don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. But if you yeah. go through the motions of what you're doing as a winner, you're going to start to feel like one in a shorter amount of time. And I'll be wow. a difficult. I really um, made that promise to myself that like on days after I lose, I'm even more rigorous in my actions and my behavior than I am if I win. Because if I'm a win, it doesn't really matter. I don't need to necessarily do everything right because I'm I'm on that high of winning. I'm going to play well and and things are going fine. So yeah, that was a tough time. I went back through that process. Actually, I remember recovering from that a lot faster than I was supposed to. I got, you know, I, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So I, I really did go through the motions and really forced, you know, prepared well. But I remember serendipitous situations sort of happened to me and I, I did well in a few games after that. And I actually won quite a bit back in a, in a shorter amount of time after that. So that was yeah. good. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. Okay, so let's get into this whole idea of risk, risk tolerance. Uh, where I want to start is probably a, a bizarre place to start, but I was thinking about sort of, you know, the probability of, of the downsides and, and all this stuff. You know, Annie, Annie and I talked a bit about probability, um, but I want to take it from a different angle. So take, for, for example, you know, something as ridiculous as approaching a girl at, you know, a, a bar or whatever. The downside of that is literally humiliation. But in your mind, you play it out to like mean all of these like awful things, right? It's just, oh, this is embarrassing. This is, you know, never going to happen, whatever. You know, of course, the upside is you might meet somebody amazing. Uh, and yet I think in our minds, when we, we look at risks like that, uh, we don't have this sort of logical, hey, the probability of this is, you know, like one in a million that something absolutely horrible is going to happen. In our minds, it, we you know, blow it so far. Yeah, out it's like 50, 50. <laughs> 50, 50 would be, be kind. We don't, we don't even take action as a result because we make this thing so much worse in our heads than it actually is. So I want to start there. Um, how do we, you know, how do we take these concepts of probability variance stakes and, and apply them to our own lives and yet at the same time, not be paralyzed by the sort of emotional baggage and bullshit that's going on in our heads? 
It's a great question and something I deal with with uh, with clients when I work with them in poker because there's a lot of situations at the table where they'll know that a play is right. You know, for example, they'll they'll know they have the right odds to make a play, mm-hmm. but they're apprehensive about doing it because, of course, there's money involved. They, in order to make the right play, they have to go all in. They have to risk yeah. all the money they have. Um, and I dealt with this as well in in the high stakes poker games where it's like, do you really want to bet? A house on this hand and if you're wrong right. you know it's a marginal spot and if you're wrong you're going to lose so it's like it's it's hard not to think about the absolute value of the money and think in terms of units um and and, and actually make the plays that you know inherently are the right plays right like if you see a girl and she's looking at you and you guys smile at each other and and you feel that spark you know that the right play is to go initiate a conversation like that the, no one would argue that that's the correct play. And, and the same is true at the table, right? There are situations where you know the right play. So one thing I found that works really well for me, um, and, 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 uh, and, I, and I, I go over in my coaching as well, is to think about the situation. Because a, a lot of the problem that I find is that when you, you're in the driver's seat and you look at something from the first person, like it's mm-hmm. me, and these are the risks that are, that are happening to me personally, it's easier to let emotion cloud judgment and then deter you from taking action so in the case of the woman it would be like okay what if she says this to me what if she rejects me your ego is at stake and then you're, you're putting yourself in the first person and you could start to feel those emotions internally that could happen in your worst case scenario so mm-hmm. at the table i like to to separate myself from the, the situation and to create space between myself and and my ego to allow myself to think about the situation more rationally. So a, a quick thing I do is say, and I talk to myself in the third person, and this might sound a little bit like odd. It might feel almost arrogant to do this, you know, to, to talk to yourself. Like when you talk in the third person, it sounds like you're kind of being arrogant, right? Like if you speak out loud in the third person, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but when you do this to yourself, you actually look at yourself as if you were giving yourself advice. So when I'm playing poker, I, I, I look at it like, if I was sitting behind Alec, what would I tell him to do? And that makes it easier for me to see the situation from a third party and look at the situation objectively and say, Alec, what, what is the best? What should Alec do in this hand? Yeah. And then I say, okay, well, what advice would this person give to Alec? And then I say, well, well, Alec should go all in because the odds are in his favor. This is the right play. But when you're in the first person, you're saying, I don't want to risk this money here. This is so much money. What if I lose? And I feel like that separation really helps me think uh, logically about it. And if you think about why this works, it's actually pretty simple. Like, think about how, why, why is it that when your friend comes to you and says, What should I do about my relationship situation? You can see their relationship problems clearly. You can see yeah. his personal life clearly and give advice to your friend about what, she, what he or she <laughs> should do. But why is it so hard to figure out your own life? Yeah. Like, why is it so hard to figure out your own problems? But why is it so easier to see the solutions for other people? Because you're not emotionally involved. You're not, uh-huh. a, you're not internally involved in that situation because you've created that space between you and the other person. So I try and do that at the table. And I talk to myself in third person and pretend like I'm giving myself advice. And I actually pose questions to myself in the third person to create that space. And then it's easier to go in and execute when, when it's time to go talk to that girl. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we've talked about it from a psychological standpoint. Let's talk about this idea of probability variance and stakes, because you, like you said, in that decision, the stakes aren't high, but the average person listening to this, like at least me, if I lost $2 million in a night, I would be like, holy shit, now what? 
uh, you know, and, and granted, one of the funniest thing, one of the most interesting things I ever heard from one of my old business partners, I, I remember I would get stressed out because the nature of doing freelance work or being a public speaker is you'll have these like huge months and then you don't make anything for a month or two. And he said, you don't understand. He said some of the highest income earners in the world have tremendous variability in their income. He said, think about it. Like people are billionaires. They lose millions of dollars in one month and make, you know, make up for it the next. Uh, so let's talk about this idea of stakes, because I think that, you know, for we were talking about a low stakes situation, which is like talking to a girl where the real downsides are not anything other than sort of psychological trauma. Um, but what about where the stakes are really high? I mean, in the case, you know, we we're talking about drugs earlier, but for any normal person, like betting the equivalent of like their mortgage or their house in one night, that those are insane stakes. Yeah. So this is a good question. This deals with uh, what we call bankroll management in poker. And one of the, the you know, arguably the most important skill set you could have in, in poker, ironically, is, is money management. And you wouldn't really think that. You would think, okay, it's something tactical, like how well, how good you are at playing the game or reading people or psychology or tells or all these sorts of flashy things. But in, in fact, you can be the best player in the world. But if you don't manage your risk or your, your portfolio allocation, so to speak, correctly, uh, you will wind up broke. And mm -hmm. So it's all relative when it comes to bankroll management. You have to only risk, you know, a small portion of what you can afford to lose in any one night, and then also make sure that you have enough buy-ins or units for the stakes that you're playing to withstand the variance. And there's actually, um, in, in our membership, for example, at, at Conscious Poker, we actually have like content in there about how to do this. So for example, you'll go through, you know, a variance calculator that'll tell you how many buy-ins you need to play a certain game because how much you can expect to win or lose based on your hourly rate. So there's mm -hmm. there's programs you could run through that'll tell you like how many units you need in order to um, make sure that you're not going to go broke. And the same is true in life as well, right? Like if you're yeah. a sports better or you're, you know, investing in in the in the market, um, one of the first things you learn is is diversification. And to not bet all of your, you know, to have a balanced portfolio, right? You have yeah. some of your portfolio in bonds and some of them in stocks and some of them in, in, in other asset classes to make sure that like you're not too taking too much risk in any one area. So when it comes to poker, I think, you know, this is one of the things I learned the hard way, unfortunately, um, by not having great bankroll management early on in my career is that uh, you really need to make sure that you have enough units, never betting the farm and separating your poker bankroll from your life role. So where I think this yeah. could help people in business is something like, okay, if you're going to take, if you're going to make a business investment in something you're doing to make sure that you have, you know, your living expenses set aside for six months or a year mm -hmm. so that the money yeah. that you're investing in your business is sort of discretionary, right? Because it is a high risk activity and the higher the risk involved in the activity, the more that you need to be conservative in making sure that the money is insignificant to the, the grand scheme of your life. And so I always mm -hmm. recommend my clients to say, okay, you're, you're involving yourself in a, in a, in a high-risk activity you know, like poker. Make sure you have six months to a year of living expenses set aside. Make sure you can cover your poker expenses. Make sure you have a separate bank account for your poker money. And that all these things are in place before you even play your first hand. Uh, and then yeah. make sure you also have a business plan for how the money in your poker bankroll is going to be allocated. And the same is true in a business plan. You don't want to just mm -hmm. throw 50000 into a startup. You want to have a specific, clear plan for exactly where that money is going to be used and, and obviously yeah. be extremely frugal. 
Yep. Well, it's funny because I think about runway management a lot, you know, especially having just raised a round of venture funding. We're always like, okay, what is, you know, I run a cash flow analysis that literally will show me, okay, based on the current burn rate, you have this much, you know, time if you don't right. make any money in the next amount of, you know, whatever months it is. Uh, and knowing that, I, I think that's important to know that. I think that, you know, founders who don't know that are the ones who end up, you know, finding themselves wondering what the hell happened. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think, yeah, and I'm right there with you. And I think, you know, the longer you can extend that runway, the the better it is. And I think doing yeah. things like taking a personal business loan for, you know, a high risk startup or something like that is is unwise. I would recommend mm-hmm. something like, you know, working and, and people come to me with these poker questions often where it's like mm-hmm. they want to do something to allocate money to poker. And I'm always recommending people to like, work a period of time in their job and be as frugal as possible to cut back in their personal yeah. life, save as much money from their personal life, shift it over to their new poker bankroll, let that grow to reach a certain point where they can then have the money set aside and a high, like a high enough um, rate where they can, you know, sustain their poker business for a long time without having to win. Because yeah. in, in business and in poker, you can actually lose money, right? Like in poker, you can lose oh. money every month and in business, you lose money every month. So having that those the monthly units as high as possible is is a great uh, a great risk management approach i think yeah i mean people had asked us why would you why would you raise a round of venture funding and i said look i mean it extends a runway it also gives us the ability to think long term not hey how are we going to get to next month yeah i think that's smart too because it it forces it, it so the longer and it's it, this is a phenomenon true in tournament poker you know the more chips you have the more you can selectively wait for spots yeah. And so I find that the more like in, 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 in your case as well, it makes a lot of sense. The more the capital you have, the less you have to be aggressive and you don't have to take marginal situations and push, you know, be perhaps too aggressive to do things mm-hmm. that you won't otherwise do if you had a longer time horizon because you can sit back and wait for your premium hands, so to speak, yeah. and, and play those hands strong and but play when the odds are more in your favor. And, and the more capital you have set aside that, you know, that you buy yourself that time. I think that's really smart. Mm hmm. So let's talk about this idea of variance. What did you mean by that? Is that basically the sort of variability and risk? And, and how do you, and so I, and from a poker standpoint, I'm assuming it's a lot of math and calculation, but in life, how do you take this idea of calculating risk? Like, how do you determine what the, the you know, the probability variance and all that other stuff is? Yeah, so variance is this idea that not, in the short term, at least, you're not going to have the results that are expected. So for example, um, you flip a coin. The odds that it's going to be heads are 50-50. But it doesn't mean that every other toss will be heads. And that is true because of variance. So you can flip a coin and seven times in a row, it will be tails. But that doesn't mean that on the eighth try, the odds are any less. So I think what this leads to is to help people think in terms of expectation and to make decisions based on probability, not on past outcomes. So for example, the fact that uh, you lost five hands of poker doesn't mean that you're necessarily a bad player, and it doesn't mean you're any more likely to win the sixth hand or lose the sixth hand, but rather that you should play the hands when the odds are in your favor. So a lot of people change their strategy in certain situations because of results, and that's a big mistake. Um, mm-hmm. The only time people should change their strategy in, in a game like poker or or in general is when, they're, when their strategy is yielding a, a lower expectation or it's it's not a winning strategy. Um, but if your strategy is winning, there might be variance in the short term. But if you keep putting the odds in your favor, in the long term, right. that strategy will manifest into you being a winner. 
So it's really about focusing on the quality of the decisions that you're making and then uh-huh. trusting that in the long run, you know, in the short term, anything could happen, right? You can test out a campaign on whatever, an, an ad campaign, and it could go wrong. You could you uh-huh. could do a lot of things in business and, and it could go wrong in the short term. But if you continually put yourself in the in the favorable situation to make winning bets, then in the long run, that will ultimately, you know, things will regress to their mean. Right? If you flip uh-huh. a coin enough times, it will be heads half of them. And so I think that that also ties into the money management side of things is that it's knowing that you need to have enough capital in in whatever operation you're running to sort of reach the long term. And that's not going to happen in a very short time necessarily because um, there is there's there's variance involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being, you know, having enough units in your bankroll to allow yourself to play through the ups and downs until, it, you know, the odds are going to be come back in your favor is an important aspect of of what it means to be successful at poker. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as I think about you know 10 years of working on unmistakable creative and how many of the sort of big inflection points have taken anywhere between six to seven years. Uh, and it was really just about continually. I, I just Simon Sinek has a new book out called The Infinite Game. And I, I, I've always said, I said, you know, you have to really, Love it. You know, I thought of it, I said, like creative success in any field, whether it's acting, whether it's publishing, you know, whatever is an infinite game. Uh, there's no sort of I've made it moment where you just arrive and, and you know, you describing this process makes me think it's like, oh, OK, so if I keep doing the things that I've been doing, like the idea of it all regressing to the mean, eventually it all kind of and in, in a lot of ways it kind of has like I haven't had anything super catastrophic happen. Yeah, I mean, if you're like, so you, you, a lot of people put out content, right? And you could you can put out one con one piece of content and it could go viral or you can put out 10 pieces of great content. And they might not get as much mm-hmm. traction for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, it had a bad title, maybe posted at the wrong time, maybe it just didn't get picked up. I mean, there's a lot of different sort of randomness. Like, there's like a lot of sort of luck in these sorts of things, right? Yeah. But eventually, if you you have to trust that if you are great at what you do and you put mm-hmm. out great content for a decade, eventually yeah. you will reach close to the level that you're supposed to have in terms of success. There will be outliers, there will be people that you know, there might be great entrepreneurs that start companies that are actually great and that become huge, maybe like Bezos or Zucks or Steve Jobs. And there's there's luck involved in the sense that they were also at the right place at the right time. You know, right. They, they weren't necessarily, they're not necessarily, you know, they have billion or trillion dollar market caps. They're not necessarily, you know, a billion times better than another entrepreneur, mm-hmm. perhaps not. But like in the long run, winners will win if they play their hand well and they do that repetitively for a long period of time they might not exactly win what they're supposed to mm-hmm. you know you might not you might not reach exactly what your expectation is because life perhaps that we live on earth is not a long enough sample size to reach the long run that's just mm-hmm. the nature of the game there is luck involved you might start your business only within a two to five year window and depending on the market timing or how fast you scale and the luck that sort of happens and the, the way that you work in that small sample size might manifest into completely different uh, trajectories or realities. But in the end, you're not going to, you're not going to like go broke in business if you're the best entrepreneur and have a great idea. Right. Yeah. And you're not going to necessarily have a, a trillion dollar company if you suck shit. So yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like it, things will regress to their mean. And I think the key is, and you mentioned it as well as like an unmistakable creative, it's, it's that you've, been in it a decade and so many people i feel like get the the mistake that i see some people make is i feel like their expectation of the long term is 10 percent of what the long term actually is people will come to me and i see this all the time in poker they'll come to me like dude i've been losing for a month and i'm like (laughs) 
<laughs> How many times have you played? And they're like, six. And I'm like, dude, you can lose six times in a row. Like, the long run is way longer than people think. It takes a lot longer than people think to build something great or to build a huge brand or to build a huge company. And people see other people as overnight successes because they didn't hear about them one day. And then the next day, they hear about them everywhere. And it's like, well, that person was... If you watch them for 10 years, they were doing the same thing they're doing today every day for 10 years. It's just they hit a tipping point where things are starting to come together for them. But it's because they've put in the sweat equity for a decade. Yeah. And so... I feel like the lo- the people, you know, the 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 key here is kind of seeing that the long run takes a lot longer and mm-hmm. just having the patience to execute over a very long period of time and you know, well deserved kudos to you. I mean, you deserve it. You've been at it for 10 years and, and like you said, 6 or 7 years into it, you started to see the exponential growth. Yeah. And it's the last 2 years people are like, "Oh, you know, overnight success, right? Like you came <laughs> out of nowhere." Well, it's, it's like funny, you know, it's funny because we just published a new uh ebook that's free called Make More Art. You can get it on mistakablecreative.com slash art. And the entire premise of the book was that the only reason I think I've had any degree of success is that I've been prolific. And so the idea was like, the more art you make, the more likely you are to hit, you know, create something that strikes a chord with somebody. And so the pre- it's basically Make More Art, a no bullshit guide to becoming a prolific creator. And I'm like, look, it doesn't matter if you have talent, skill, whatever. If you're prolific, eventually, somehow, you might end up developing talent in the process. And I, to me, that, you know, like I see this, I, I see parallels between the two things we're talking about. Yeah, totally. And I feel like, uh, you know, I've been in the content creation game for a while, too. I, I have probably close to 600 videos on YouTube, but I can't tell you how many of them are like just flops. Like sometimes you put out a video and it doesn't connect, it doesn't resonate, it gets, it gets a thousand views, and then you know, which is which is really small relative to, to what I'm hoping for. And then other views, all videos will have 100,000. But it's like yeah. the 80-20 principle is totally in effect where like it may be even 90-10 where like 90% of the people that are aware of me are aware of me because of 10% of the content I've produced. But I had to go through producing 550 other videos that it's not like I didn't put my, my heart into them or not like I just produced purpose intentionally shitty content. It's just, you know, I had to go through the process, the pain and like just finding what works, what doesn't, or maybe you had an off day, or maybe you put out a video and it just didn't work. Um, But it's like, you have to go through that process of creating, like you said, creating your art to figure out what is going to work. And then ultimately just give yourself the most amount of at-bats. It's like, if you just do something over and over and over again, like eventually, you know, one of those things will work. One of those things will stick. But like the more situations you put yourself in to get lucky, so to speak, to get a viral piece of content, it's in in a way it's getting lucky. Um, But if you, give yourself a chance to get lucky, you're, you're, you're not really getting lucky. You know, you're, you're putting the odds in your favor by continuous effort. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I want, I want to finish with one, two more questions about this. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this through the lens of sort of, you know, math and probability and, and, you know, sort of statistical stuff, like really sort of quantitative stuff. But I'd imagine there's right. a very qualitative aspect to this too, which is about reading people. And we could probably do an entire second episode, I'm guessing, about the, the psychology of reading people. Uh, in a poker game, but I'm curious if you could give us the Reader's Digest version of what you've learned about how to read people based on this experience. So I feel like at the table, people play the game the way that reflects who they are as people. And what it's really taught me is that poker, like other things in life, are are sort of like amplifiers of who people actually are. Like money is another one. Um, uh, power is probably another one. Um, and, and you kind of like discover the way that people act or behave at the table, like how they play the game is sort of a reflection of 
who they are personally. And I find that getting to know someone personally or, or getting to know anecdotes or things about them is going to lead to how they're likely to make decisions under pressure. So, for example, if you are playing against a someone who's very connected to the fact that they were, you know, a, a jock in high school and they're like to be, you know, somehow connected to that and they're trying to show off, they're maybe more likely to bluff you at the table. So I feel like the way that someone appears and the way that someone acts, it translates into the way that they play poker. And so one of the things that I try to do is understand people and how they see the world and how they think about things. And then that also leads me to think of like how they're going to actually play when it comes to the cards. Are they more likely to bluff? Are they going to be too tight? Are they going to be scared of the money? Are they going to be not wanting to look stupid? So maybe they're going to fold um, because they don't want to be embarrassed in front of other people. They're not going to be capable of making a big call or they're not going to be capable of making a big bluff because they don't want to be you know, humiliated in front of their peers. And so all these things sort of lead to how people are going to react at the table. And I think the lesson for me has just been uh, to really think analytically about this and think just how people um, behave and see the world and really trying to like step into the shoes of someone else. Um, and that's really like, that's really helped me in a lot of things because I feel like outside of poker, it's just helped me better read people and better understand like um, who maybe you want to go into business with or be, you know, start relationships with and be friends with. Um, and so I feel like that, that skill at poker is, is uh, you know, you're always kind of reading people in certain situations. <laughs> and so um, it's helped a lot in social situations as well for me. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I love this. This has been super cool and fascinating. Uh, Thank I you. have so many things that I want to go back here and, and sort of digest and dissect <laughs> for myself. Uh, so I want to finish with my final question, which I know you've heard me sure. ask before. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, man. Um, it's so broad. Any, any specifics on that? No, it's a good question. You, uh, you know, whatever you, be, I think the, the funny thing about this question is, is people, I, always, everyone can answer it a different way. You know, there's yeah, so many ways to interpret it. Exactly. So what makes someone unmistakable? I should be prepared. I guess the thing is just the way that they like what their, what their really core strength is. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like everyone has a sort of superpower. Everyone has something that is easy for them to do that comes very naturally that they are just gifted at. It's the thing that they just naturally gravitate to and they can do very, very well when, they, when they're tired without being asked. It's something that they kind of just do automatically. Um, and so for me, I have those things in, in poker in my business. Like I'm really good at just creating content and making poker strategy simple. It's like, that's something that I'm really good at in the scope of the business. And maybe I have other talents too that are outside of um, poker strategy and coaching, but that's like something that I'm really good at. Mm -hmm. So understanding what your unmistakable thing is and understanding what your superpower is, is I think the thing that makes everyone unmistakable. And then I believe that it's really doubling down on that and, and not worry as much. I mean, sure, you should try and plug your weaknesses, but mm -hmm. I think it's really about doubling down on your strengths and figuring out what it is that really makes you unmistakable and makes everyone unique. And everyone has that little thing. And I think the key for all of us is finding out what that is. And I kind of attribute it to being a tool. Mm -hmm. um, if you are a hammer and you find a nail, that is a great match for you. 
because you can be extremely effective. Mm -hmm. But if you are a drill and you see a nail, that's not good. You need a screw. And so it's about matching what your inherent gifts are and what you're really skilled at with the thing that you're pursuing, you know, broadly and specifically within your business. Uh, and I think when you match those two things, you find people that are that are unmistakable. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story. And your thank you for having me. Oh, it has been my pleasure. This has been super fun. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? Thanks for that. Uh, two places. I'm at, at Alec Torelli everywhere on social media and alectorelli.com is my personal site with a blog that I keep. And if you want more poker insights and poker strategy, you can find that at Conscious Poker. So ConsciousPoker.com. And we have a YouTube and Conscious Poker socials as well. And a poker training site for people that want that next level in poker. So find me there. I'm very active on social. And I'd love to hear from you. Tell me you found me here and come say hi. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.